Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, designed for culture. Today, I am joined by Beth Zebarth and Jan Majewski. Beth and Jan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. So to get started, for those who don't know you, could you each tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, I'll start. I'm Beth Zebarth, and I am the head diversity officer for the Smithsonian. And I, my position right before this was director of access Smithsonian. So I have a long history of working on accessibility, and I'm a disabled person. So it's both personal and professional. Great, Jan. I'm Jan Majewski. I'm the Director of Inclusive Projects at the Institute for Human-Centered Design. IHCD is an educational design advocacy group, and we work on consultation as well as education on inclusive design for everything. And Jan, you used to also work at the Smithsonian, right? And I did. also at the Department of Justice for a little while, I think in that order, right before you started doing what you do now. Exactly. I started at the Smithsonian as the coordinator for special education way back in the 70s, and then founded the accessibility program in the early 90s, and then moved on to the Department of Justice to work in ADA technical assistance and compliance. So when you started at the Smithsonian, according to the time frame you just gave, you were eight years old? Seven and a half. Wow, that's very precocious to have a a national federal posting of that kind at that kind of early age. That's amazing. I want to mention to people, listeners who have not heard the names of my guests that in the certainly in the exhibition and museum experience business, both of their names loom large. These my guests today are authors and developers and evolvers and overseers of standards for accessibility. And now with Beth's new position, standards for DEAI, which we'll be talking about during the show, that not only apply to every Smithsonian project done, and the Smithsonian is many museums, each of which with many projects, every year for many years. So if you're involved in this business at all, you would have you, your work is built around these standards. But in addition to that, and my guests may actually not realize to what degree this is true, those standards have been adopted by many other institutions who don't have the resources and don't need to because of the work of my guests as their standards. And even if they are not the standards, they've become the de facto standards for situations when there aren't, where there aren't any that have been claimed. So my guests are, their influence has been, cannot be understated in the world of, of exhibitions and museums. And I am especially thrilled to have both of you here on the show. I think, and I would say to all of our listeners, if you're out jogging or doing the dishes, stop doing that. Get yourself a notebook because you want to write down a few of these things. <laughs> Actually, you can finish doing the dishes. It's important, especially to your spouse. Right. Um, I would like to, I'm curious though, both of you, when you first got into the business, I always like to ask this, how did you first get into this business? Because it's always an interesting question. The answer is usually sideways. Beth, how did you originally get into the business? 
So I started as a volunteer at the Smithsonian, and I was working for the National Associate Program. Then I spent a number of years working in as a so- social science analyst in the Institutional Studies Office at the Smithsonian. And it was during the time that I was working there that Jan started the accessibility program, and we had to figure out how to do a baseline survey of the program side of and the Smithsonian for accessibility purposes. So we were figuring out how to do an exhibition survey and a publication survey and a public program survey because there wasn't any, like you were talking about, no standards, no guidelines at that time for museums on how to look at these program components for museums and figure out whether they were accessible or not. And uh, Jen, how about you? How did you originally get into this? I started out as a teacher of deaf students. I taught deaf kids in the Arlington County public school system, and our program was getting smaller and smaller. This position at the Smithsonian to become the coordinator for special education in what was then the Office of Elementary and Secondary Education came up and it was particularly focused on access for kids who were deaf. So it was just a perfect job to transition into. And then we realized how much the program had to grow, that nothing, other things were not, they were being done in pieces in various museums. And so as a central coordinating office, we could begin to encourage everyone to look at accessibility first for kids with any kind of disability and then for kids and adults. So the program kind of organically grew through the years. And then in 1991, after the ADA was signed, the institution committed to making an accessibility program that it put under the Assistant Secretary for Museums. And so I started by heading that program. Wow. So you kind of started out there as a, you were on one lily pad, it was getting smaller, you jumped to a different lily pad, and then that lily pad got gigantic and took over the whole pond. Exactly. And then I was smart enough to hire Beth out of her (laughs) other position, and together we really developed the program from there. Got it. Okay. So that's how it works. So you've, so Beth, you've known Jan since she was seven and a half years old. (laughs) Yes. And she was a, a a marvelous mentor, even at seven and a half years old. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know about the order of things uh-huh. and who was the mentor and who was the mentee. And now, wow. Okay. So for listeners, we've got a lot of brain power on this on this program. Now that I understand how this, what the order of it was. That's amazing. actually Jonathan. The order has switched now. I mean, it is blurred between mentor and mentee. We just go back and forth. <laughs> ah, the, the teacher has become the student, has become the Ex- teacher. Yeah. That's even better. That's awesome. This show is all about professional development, and you are, uh, th- the two of you are a, a living story of that, it sounds like. So anyway, let's, let's jump into this. Our theme for today is DEAI, meeting ADA standards, isn't enough. And we'll talk about what all those words mean for those listeners who are very accustomed to this. You'll be very aware of that. And the title might come as a bit of a surprise, which is interesting. As always, I know the list 
of uh, points that we're going to go over, our talking points, but not that much more. My guests are the experts, and we have eight points for today under this topic of DEAI, meeting ADA standards isn't enough, with my guests Beth Zebarth and Jen Majewski. Number one, we'll start with something just to sort of set the pace. Individuals with disabilities are 26% of the population of the United States. Let's talk about that. That's I had to read that twice. It, that's profound. That sort of sets the tone for our entire conversation. And our listeners who are jogging or washing the dishes, maybe they will actually stop. Think about for, for think about that for a minute. Can you say more about what that means? I think it's really imp- an important number because many people think this is an us and them issue, and the them is a small group of people who may or may not come to museums. I mean, over the years, Beth and I have heard so long people saying, but quote unquote, they don't come to the museums. Well, they probably do, and they you don't know they're there, and you probably know many people who have disabilities. So 26% is actually, a, that's a understated number. It's probably much higher than that. These are people who have self-identified and this is the adult population. This doesn't even include children or groups who have been, who are not in the general public themselves. They are in either they are incarcerated or they are in group homes. They are not included in this number. And for children alone, in 2021 to 2022 school year, there were 7.3 million children who are receiving services for what is called IDEA. It's kind of a taking the DEAI and twisting the letters, but it's the, in the individual children's, individual dis- Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And this is what how children get services in school. And 32% of those children have specific learning disabilities. So this is not this is a non-apparent disability. This is not something that someone might recognize immediately if a child came into the museum. And we need to talk about that as well, that a lot of disabilities are not apparent and you don't know if someone with a disability is coming into the museum and enjoying him or herself or facing a lot of barriers. I'll just add that um, we're talking about the U.S. population, but Globally, 1.3 billion people have a disability, and that is about 16% of the global population. And again, that number is underestimated because that is coming from the World Health Organization, where they would have more of a contact with people who have some type of a health condition or disability. But in so many other cultures, disability is either accepted as being part of a human, you know, the human condition, or it is something that is not talked yeah. about and hidden. It may be shameful to admit that you have a disability. So it's very different when you start looking at global st- statistics and how attitudes about disability can really differ. So yeah. 1.3 billion, that's just to put that in context, that's it. I had to just pause for a minute there myself when you said that and write that down. I'm just thinking 
That is the size of the country of India. Wow. Also, that's also the entire country of India. I think India is 1.4 billion people at the moment. The United States is about 400 million. So that's, there are three United States populations okay. living in the world today uh-huh. who have disabilities. And to your good point, Jan, the point that you made, many of those disabilities cannot be seen. Uh-huh. And so, so this is a lot of a lot of eye-opening numbers. Our point right now is individuals with disabilities are 26% of the population. I, I guess I could append that with at least 26%. That's the minimum because, as you just pointed out, Beth, there's, there may be a, you know, a, a person may have a shame associated with that or not want to say for other reasons or just not feel like they'd like oh. to or they may not be being counted or being asked. Wow, four United States worth of people with disabilities. That's uh, a great way to start our conversation. That's sobering and I guess sort of engaging makes one, I'm sure these kinds of statistics have powered whole careers for both of you. (laughs) What a, what a thing to work on. And Um, those numbers have grown with COVID because long COVID is now can now be considered a disability in certain cases and as we age the graying of the population over 40 percent of people over the age of 65 have some sort of age-related change that may qualify as a disability and they probably won't admit to you know the my father who never had a hearing loss but was constantly turning up the television set so I think there are a lot of people out there that are not getting counted, and the number is really much larger. Right. Yeah. In the exhibition design business, we're always talking about the audience who uh, cannot read that thing, cannot hear that thing, cannot understand that thing, but will never tell you that they can't. And you just have to believe that they're there. Point number two, that's an amazing first point. Point number two, to be essential to all Museums and exhibitions must be accessible to all. I think that that sounds a little bit like for museums writ large, Smithsonian has many of them, and for museums in general, museums can't stake a claim to being essential and therefore won't be as effective getting public support, grants, etc., whatever, um, unless they're accessible to all. Do I have that right? Or am I, like with the first point, underestimating the scale of this one? I think that's right on target. And AAM has always said, you know, in order to be accessible to everyone, we have to tell everyone's stories, not just a small number of people. And we have to serve everyone in order to be essential to everyone. So I think that's so important. And when we start talking about those numbers and realizing that we have intergenerational family groups coming and we have people with disabilities of all ages and cultures and other identities coming, you can't say, we, we're we not going to be accessible to you, I'm sorry, and still be a functioning institution that says they are for the public. Yeah, I think, and the point really is that we want everybody to to understand the main messages that we are promoting in our exhibitions, programs, etc. It doesn't make any sense that we wouldn't want everybody to be able to 
benefit from what we are doing because that's it's the reason why we do it. We want people to understand and be engaged and being lifelong yep. learners in museums. And that's kind of, that's a, the preview of what a museum is, a public museum anyway, and mm-hmm. therefore the Smithsonian, and therefore what you both do. So that point, that is, to be essential to all, museums and exhibitions must be accessible to all, building on our first point. So point number three here, now we're going to get into a little bit of jargon. We've got a little bit of uh, acronyms going on here. We've got two acronyms in this point people would have heard before, and they might be a little confused about it. So we might want to slow down and do a little bit of defining. Point number three DEI plus accessibility equals DEAI. I'll say it again. DEI plus accessibility equals DEAI. Could you say more about what that that acronym at the end, that, those four letters mean for the Smithsonian? Uh, I've heard those letters in another order before. Not that we're counting, but DEIA. But at the Smithsonian, you put the A right in the middle. Why is that? I'm sure there's a story behind that. Yeah. So when we're talking about DEAI or whatever we want to order the letters, that we're talking about diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion. And accessibility was added really by, I think, the museum um, sector to the idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which was something that was already being discussed and worked on in the corporate world and other sectors within the United States. Plenty of people, you know, having positions in DEI, usually people related to human resources, you know, in their jobs. But for the museum world, back when AAM did the Facing Change report, which I was part of, we talked about defining diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion. And we purposely added in the accessibility because AAM had already been interested in and working on accessibility and realized it was kind of the missing piece to the equation. And the fact that we added that in, I think, has been very beneficial, and it's been something that the Smithsonian continued to use as part of the acronym, which was a way to, I think, really for me to move into this realm. So I'm not typical to, you know, the DEA, DEI world in that my focus initially was on accessibility and now have broadened that to DEAI. And I just really pleased with how the Smithsonian and the museum sector looks at this, that accessibility is an important part of what we're talking about. And I'm not sure if we were going to talk about this at this point, but I'll start talking a little bit about the fact that accessibility is about the environments that people are in. So it's the physical environment or the communication environment or the political and social environments. And it came from this definition or this look at what accessibility is in environments 
comes from the World Health Organization, and they they talked about the disability results from the interaction between individuals with a health condition, such as cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, depression, with personal and environmental factors, including negative attitudes, inaccessible transportation in public buildings, limited social support, and a person's environment has a huge effect on the experience and extent of disability. Inaccessible environments create barriers that often hinder the full and effective participation of persons with disabilities in society on an equal basis with others. What I like about this is that it also is something that goes along with what the UN has focused on in their Conventions on the Rights of People with Disabilities, where one of the articles talks about being able, all people as a human right, should be able to fully participate in the social aspects of, of a country. Things like sports, going to museums, going to the theater, participating in the full, full cycle of things that people can do in terms of social participation. And I think that's a really important thing for us to think about. It's not just a civil right, it's a human right to be able to participate in, in things like in museums. And I'm curious because you're, you just mentioned, Beth, your own trajectory coming into a DEI and accessibility position from the accessibility point of view as opposed to the other way around. I guess you go the other way around as well. And you mentioned that DEI is often a, because one of the main points about DEI for organizations of any kind, college campuses, corporations, anything, branches of the military, is recruiting. In other words, trying to make the group of people themselves who are the organization more diverse or diverse, equitable and inclusive, and that's how you do it. Accessibility Mm -hmm. is about changing the environment now, accessibility initiatives are often in the, as we were talking before the show, they're often in the education department or they're in the facilities department. Right? Well, Does that mean, Beth, that you're kind of in charge of everything? Is that, <laughs> because that's a lot of territory. And for listeners don't may not know this, not every listener, but the amount of the, the, just the volume of the standards, because there's so many things to consider from you know, where your coffee stirrers are to, you know, what kind of language you use in your database entries for artifacts. It's sort of vast. How do you cope with all of that? It's yeah. an enormous amount of stuff to have to look after. Yeah. Thank you for the question. And I think it's something that it can be overwhelming, but it is something where we try to narrow it down to within the Smithsonian, my office diversity is looking at the internal side of things, looking at staff and how we can work with staff to really embed the ideas and the principles and the behaviors related to diversity, equity, accessibility, inclusion into everybody's mindset. But I was just talking with a colleague before this who is working on our our Reckoning with Our Racial Past project at the Smithsonian and how He's working on the external side of things about our interactions with communities, but you can't have one without the other. The very point of working with staff 
on DEAI means that it will improve our ability to actually effectively work with communities. And it's integrated. It's something that we need to really think about in that way. And it's not just me, the one you know person in the Office of Diversity that has to be thinking about this. My job is really to make sure that everybody on staff is thinking about this in terms of I'm not going to have all the answers. I'm not going to have all the solutions. I can't change everybody's minds. I have to give you opportunities to have conversations about DEAI, about how it impacts your work. And so it's more about influencing people to think more about DEAI rather than having a a lot of different things to check off, you know, that people need to accomplish. It's more about influencing how they think and act and behave. I guess that I'm not sure if that makes it sound like your job is easier or harder. (laughs) (laughs) It's no problem. We'll just have to influence the behavior of everybody. (laughs) You know, we should be done by that that Tuesday lunchtime. Yeah, we should be wrapping that, wrapping it up around there. Yeah, it should be fine. Uh, speaking of people, so you, you started to talk about point number four. You, you sort of addressed that earlier, but I do want to sort of underline that. Point number four here, DEI, it, it, when you, you expressed this to me earlier, I, I thought like that was a big light bulb moment. DEI is about the people, but accessibility, which is the A in DEAI, is about well, their environment. DEI is about people. Accessibility is about their environment, the physical environment. And you just added something I didn't think about either, you know, cultural and political environment, the digital environment, whatever. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because when you phrased it that way, I thought, oh, that means that uh, the fact that this group of people over here has these abilities and that meshes well with the environment that they're wandering around in, this group of people over here, these 26 at least percent, if 1.4 billion people may have a different set of abilities. They do not mesh well with the environment there. But those 1.4 billion people or 1.3 billion people, it's not because of the people. It's because the environment doesn't work. Right. Do I have that right? Because that's a that's kind of a, it was not a radical thought, it was a very empathic thought, but it does kind of change the way you think about things. Yeah, now you do have it right. I think that it's important to think about you know access to the environment. It means that people can participate, whether it's in a job, in the coming to a museum, in going to a public program. But really, the DEI part of things is about the diversity of people who can participate. It is thinking about the different types of identities people have. So me, for example, I'm a disabled person, and so I would hope that people would think of me in terms of, am I part of that diversity mix in the community, in the workplace, that it's important to include people with disabilities in that diversity mix, and that the way to do that is to make sure that my environment is accessible so I can participate. So that's the that's why you have to have both. You have to have the wherewithal to invite people with disabilities to to your environment. <laughs> I guess is a way to put it. 
<laughs> and that's really important because there are a lot of organizations who see only the A affecting people with disabilities and diversity, equity, and inclusion somehow is separate and for other people. You know, once again, it kind of gets siloed. And as Beth said, diversity, equity, inclusion applies to people with disabilities and the whole disability rights movement. And, and accessibility is one feature, one extra component that makes it more possible for, for that diversity, equity, and inclusion. Let me do a quick station identification and we'll come back to our, our next four points. We're halfway through our points, uh, although I think we could probably talk all day and it would be great to if we could. If you're just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger and this is a project of CNG Partners Design for Culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can write a review in Apple Podcasts or you can just tell a friend to check out makingthemuseum.com for everything about this podcast and the newsletter. Now, back to the show. Today, we are talking with Beth Zebarth and Jan Majewski about DEAI, meeting ADA standards, isn't enough. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about four points. We've got four more. Next up is number five. We were uh, just starting to talk about that before that little halftime break, and that is intersectionality. Everyone has multiple identities. Intersectionality. I'd like to, yeah. for our listeners, I'd like to define what intersectionality means. We hear that a lot these days. You were just describing it. You were just talking about yourself, Beth, in terms of intersectionality. What does that word mean, and uh, how should we be using it? Yeah. So I can start off with a definition that I like, which is intersectionality is the interconnected nature of social categorizations, such as race, class, and gender, as they apply to a given individual or group, regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. So what does that really mean? That means that all people who have disabilities have other characteristics that are, make up their identity. So I cannot be a just a disabled person. I have other characteristics and other parts to my identity. And it's true with, with everybody. And intersectionality becomes very important and very powerful when you look at that interconnection between different types of identities that have long been discriminated against and how we can address the social justice necessary for, you know, thinking about intersectionality. A good example is in the disability community, we have been very, you know, we were basically primarily focused on white people who had disabilities in the past. And now in any kind of justice work, you're thinking about the other types of, dis of characteristics and identities that people have. It's become even more important for us to think about black, queer, disabled people and their voices in the disability community and not just the white voices that have, you know, for a long time been very dominant in 
in what has been happening in the disability community. So when you say intersectionality, it's almost that these are different cultural groups, different pathways, different whatever, and they're intersecting. The point of intersection is a person. Yeah. Like a person. You are the intersection. Like, Beth, you are an intersection. I guess I am an intersection. Jan, yeah. you are an intersection. I could be a Vietnamese American. That's okay. one path that I'm on. Uh, but at the same time, I'm also, uh, I have a, a same-sex spouse. Um, at the same time, I also uh, am neurodiverse. Wait. At the same time, I'm also a very proud Houstonian from Houston, Texas, <laughs> right? And which is that that would be a, a viable outcome. A, a, a Vietnamese is the third most spoken language in, in Houston, actually, well, uh, as it turns out, because I know that because of a project I'm working on. But the, those intersections, those different, the Vietnamese American vector, the uh, Houstonian vector, the uh, near those all the person is the intersection yes that's what intersectionality sounds like that's what you're saying that's where the word comes from that's where the intersection is right i guess a, a person is sort of if you think about it if you go beyond demographics and the kind of you know information that we get from social surveys to other things like yeah. um you know her uncle is crazy and she just loves baseball you know Etc. There's a kind of an infinite number of things that intersect at each of us. Uh -huh. No way. And are the, the those multiple identities? I'm curious to know, Jan. You were talking before about the kinds of disabilities you can't see, including the ones that you not only can't see but the person won't admit. You were talking about. What? I think you were talking about your father, who never ever had a hearing problem, yet couldn't hear. Um, and, you know, the 40% yeah. of people over 65 who have some kind of an issue that would qualify as a disability who don't want to admit it or sort of struggle along uh, without it. Is there a list for people like me? I'm, I am an exhibit planner and an exhi exhibition designer, and we're always thinking, what are the standards we need to comply with? How could we go further than that? ADA, that's the Americans with Disabilities Act from 1992 that was a very pivotal thing that started both of your careers and or, or helped to begin this type of work that you do. And then there's sort of, you know, the Title III, then there's universal design. But some of those, like, for example, designing for certain types of neurodiversity or like dyslexia and designing for certain kinds of colorblindness sometimes conflict. Right? <laughs> it's, it's difficult. So is there sort of a, I don't know, this is probably a terrible question. Is there some kind of a master list or a list of all the things that, that could be addressed? I don't think there would be paper long enough or a computer Got <laughs> it. with enough drive. Got and it. I think it's because you know, every time you talk to someone who has autism, they say you've talked with someone who has one person who has autism. There's so much diversity within each disability group. There's so much diversity within each individual and talking about that intersectionality and the different perspective. I think that's the great thrust of inclusive design is trying to figure out it's not the one size fits all. It's really trying to think about how much can how many people can we meet with one solution? One solution isn't going to do it. How do we make it redundant? How do we offer choices? So we always talk about layers within ex exhibitions and programs. 
You don't just say, I offer a touch tour, that therefore we are finished with people who are blind. You know, there is one touch tour. But in fact, we think about there's the layer of audio description and how can people access that. There are tactile experiences within each gallery. We look at issues of design of labels and design of graphics and design of cases so that people who have low vision can see. Not everything is going to hit, is going to reach everyone, but if you offer enough layers, then people can get most of the information, if not all of it. And it's richer for everyone. If I can hear something and see it and touch it at the same time, that information is going to stick with me more than if I just see it in passing or hear something. Our answer is not really to make the list and try to sort it and try to figure out how to meet everyone individually, but to offer as many choices as we can so that people can get as much information as they can through the channels that are easiest for them. Also, I, I like that metaphor, that sort of principle or, or rubric that you just mentioned that in designing for people of all abilities, you actually make it better for everybody. In the design business, the classic saw is the OXO Good Grips Carrot Peeler. That line of products, which now is like everywhere, anytime you need a kitchen gadget, it's like, here's an OXO. It was originally designed for people with arthritis, if I remember correctly, to make it easier to manipulate. But then all the people without arthritis were like, this carrot peeler is awesome. And they, you know, they sold out. And the people with arthritis were like, wait a minute, where's my carrot peeler? So they had to make a million more of them. And uh, you know, an empire was born. And so the idea that universal design is better for everyone. You know, we, I had a guest on a, a while back who you know, Philip Tiongson, who worked with you on a project right. recently under the theme of we're all temporarily abled. And you know, one of the like one of, one of the ideas that uh, he was sharing there is that the we're very used to, for example, internet video on phones like TikTok always carries open captions because the developers of that content are aware that teens often turn off the sound on their phones well, to not bother the. 40 other teens also doing the same thing or their parents <laughs> or their teachers when they're not supposed to be doing that. And so everyone's gotten used to basically consuming content for right. hours and hours every day, the next the upcoming generation, in the form of open captioned videos without sound. In other words, they're consuming one of the most prominent types of media in a format that you would normally think would only be for assistive media content in a museum or maybe you know sports you see over someone's shoulder in a sports bar during hockey season but i just found that very interesting it just goes to this idea that it's universal designs for everyone speaking yeah. as a designer i think it's a very yeah also for our listeners that idea that there's many ways to go at this subject and and it's just really compelling to get into it but on that subject of standards we were starting to talk about ada just a minute ago point number six is Meeting the ADA standards isn't enough for DEAI. I'm sure most of our listeners will be familiar with the term ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, the first edition of which came out in 1992, and which is famous in buildings and facilities for, for example, stipulating ramps 
That's probably one of the most obvious because it's outdoors in, in front of buildings, but also, you know, the heights of things and uh, affordability and grab bars and contrast and stairwells and all that physical stuff. As you were saying, Beth, the environment oh. of people. But say more about why meeting the ADA standards isn't enough for DEAI, which is kind of the new thing. Oh. Uh, what standards are we meeting? And are we? do we have to go I guess you have to go past it. Right. And when we talk about, this sort of goes to the topic of universal design, or as we at ICD call it, inclusive design. We use the ADA standards as a baseline. That is where we start and we go up from there. It's really unfortunate because the that the ADA is actually one of the most comprehensive pieces of civil rights legislation in our country. And most people, not only in museums, think of it in terms of a code. It's like a building code. And they think of it, as you said, in ramps and in heights of grab bars and in very physical pieces. But in fact, the ADA itself is a non-discrimination effort in employment and in public accommodations and in state and local governments. But because everyone thinks of it as a code, they go to the minimum standards, which is what the ADA is. They are minimum standards. You can always exceed them, but people, for the most part, try to just hit them. And that's a beginning, but it doesn't address, one, a lot of people who aren't directly affected by those particular physical standards and also people with those non-apparent disabilities who are looking at those other environments. It, the, it addresses effective communication, but again, in a fairly narrow way for people who are blind or have low vision or people who, have, who are deaf or hard of hearing or have speech disabilities. It's the way, the time and the place that the ADA was developed. Taking those minimum requirements and going beyond them is really needed to encompass the very broad group of people we now call people with disabilities. And to think about it, especially in museums, in ways that the ADA couldn't anticipate in the digital world. As you said, the, the law was signed in 1990. The digital world as we know it today is very different. So. It does not address currently digital interactives in museums. It doesn't address issues of lighting in exhibitions, which are, is crucial for people in navigation in being able to understand the content. It doesn't address acoustics in buildings where people who have sensory processing disorders can't deal with sound bouncing every which way. So we really need to think beyond the ADA and make sure that we address a much broader public than the ADA anticipated. Even though it's a civil rights piece of civil rights leg legislation, everything isn't specified in there. Do you think it's time for a new version of the ADA? I mean, if it's a if as you point out, ADA is not a building code, although it's treated like one. It's a non it's, a, it's an action against discrimination. It's not ensuring a discrimination-free life and workplace, et cetera, for enough different people. Should it be revised? 
It has been revised in the past. Should it be revised right. again? I, th I think it will be. Uh, and in fact, I mean, there are new regulations coming up. For example, the Department of Justice is publishing its its regulations, its proposed regulations for websites. So that will really move us forward. And there are proposed regulations for furniture and for other parts of the world that haven't been directly addressed. Part of it is just getting everyone to pay attention to that part of the ADA that is the regulation that says you can't discriminate. You need to provide access within the least restrictive environment. You need to provide it in an integrated setting and really looking at that and taking that and running with it. Uh, kind of an impromptu side question. In terms of in the museum community, especially in the yeah. exhibition development community, where I spend a lot of my time, obviously the standards that you've both developed are one of the most prominent things that's exchanged and, and actually handed out during RFPs in terms of what respondents are going to have to expect that they will be complying with. But there are some examples of other projects where an institution is, has done what you said, sort of gone beyond. And I wonder what you think of the work, I'm sure you know it very well, of like, for example, the Canadian Museum for Human Rights and the sort of, that's all Canada, they have different, it's the American, Dis Americans with Disabilities Act. So Canada has a different set of civil rights acts than we do. But the Canadian Museum for Human Rights set out in creating the museum and the exhibitions there to do something above and beyond. What's your take on what they did? Sort of an impromptu question, but I'm sure you know about it. Yeah, well, and Beth can talk about it as well, but I just to say that one of the statements on their website, which I was tickled when I saw, was we are going to do, we are going to go beyond the Smithsonian guidelines for accessible exhibition design. So <laughs> we were their baseline, which was pretty exciting. And they actually started out not being fully accessible. This was the Canadian Museum for Human Rights and the disability community said, you haven't done this. You really need to address us as a community. And it was then that they really pulled forward and did a lot of terrific things. Yeah, and a good example within the United States, which they used the Canadian Museum for Human Rights as a, a basis for some of their design decisions, is the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum, which is now one of the examples that we often use you know, in terms of accessibility and inclusive design as a really great example. And Jen and I had the opportunity to finally see it in person after the um, A conference in Denver this year. And... What I was thrilled by is not only the actual environment, the physical environment and the sensory environment, but also the integration of content between Olympic and Paralympic athletes. Because what is really kind of the point of the museum is that everyone can be an athlete. You can't, everybody can't be you know, an Olympian it can't be the best of the best, you know, in terms of sports, but everybody can be an athlete. And the way that so many of the things that were developed for 
Paralympians, you know, like assistive devices have somehow been integrated into either society or led to further development of materials for Olympic athletes. Just the kind of seamless integration of the stories between Olympians and Paralympians was what was most impressive about about the museum. And so the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum that is in, is not in Denver, it's in Colorado Springs. But yeah, that's another one that looms large in this area. So it sounds like ADA is due for some renovation. You've mentioned, we've talked about two other museum projects that are, that you now refer to. Um, Are you on the verge of creating new standards? I mean, maybe this is just a sort of a Rorschach blot test of my own personality. (laughs) But Jan, when you said that you were tickled when the Canadian Museum for Human Rights said, we're going to go beyond the SI guidelines, my immediate reaction, this is probably terrible, is, oh, yeah? We're going to <laughs> guidelines that go beyond your guidelines. But maybe it's maybe that's just me, my uh, type A personality. But are there new guidelines for Smithsonian that might be cooked up? Yeah, so Jan and I are part of a, a collaborative right now with the National Park Service where the National Park Service um, had a gr- has a grant that um is allowing us the opportunity to work together on updating the national park services specifications they call them their media specifications but to us it's another version of the smithsonian guidelines for accessible exhibition design and this gives us the opportunity as three different organizations that have done a lot of work in this area to really examine each of the things that we have put out there as a guideline, whether it's on typography or circulation routes or heights of interactives or digital you know, digital technologies, it's giving us the opportunity to really look at this together and to come up with what seems to make the most sense based on you know more recent research what we have learned, you know, <laughs> over the years, painfully sometimes. And I think this will be a really good way for us to then further elaborate what the we're going to update the Smithsonian guidelines for accessible exhibition design. And we will be able to use this for for doing curriculum, you know, for Smithsonian staff on inclusive design. So I think this is a a really good way for us to take that starting point and um, continue to make it better. I should for, for listeners, I should mention that the NPS National Park Service is another organization in the US that, that has standards that apply to this that sometimes you will hear about. Another one, uh, although it's sort of the third most common in the United States would be the standards uh, of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York in terms of some of the standards for exhibition Beth was just talking about typography and you know, things like contrast, et cetera. But of all of those, National Park Service and Smithsonian are the more detailed guidelines. Obviously, National Park Service has a lot to say about the outdoors. Not Smithsonian less so. Maybe, you know, we've always in our practice combined them. And sometimes we've had clients who are, neith- who are uh, related to neither of those organizations require us to comply with both, which we've always said to them, 
wait a minute, there are actually <laughs> different standards. Um, how can I make my minimum type size both 28 point and 22 point at the same time? And, you know, the answer is usually, I don't know, you're the expert, you deal with it. You yeah. mentioned that there were three organizations that are working on this grant. NPS, did I miss one? NPS, Smithsonian, and? The Institute for Human Science. organization. Oh, okay, right. got it. Okay, so that's a, there's a lot of, that's SI, NPS, and IHCD. Yes. You're working Alphabet on it. You're, you're working on a PDQ, and you're going to give it to the <laughs> FBI. We're going to drive down the FDR. Okay, that's a lot to take in. Point number seven, visitors. Now, we, you know, we were talking before in the other points about sort of setting the stage and then talking about the, the you know, some of the individual principles. But there are a couple of sort of, these last two points, point seven and point eight, I would say, you know, black belt level points, sort of the, you know, above and beyond. Point number seven gets at something that I think, Beth, you were saying before, and that is point number seven, visitors with disabilities want to see themselves reflected in the exhibitions, well, the, in the content, sort of a little bit like what you were talking about with the Olympic and Paralympic Museum. Say more yeah. about that. What is what? Paint me a picture of what an exhibition would look like if it reflected visitors with disabilities yeah. in the exhibition. I, I think you're talking about in the content of the exhibition, yeah. not just in the environment or the physicality of it. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I think that it's something that we have long known in the museum field is that audiences, when they come to our museums, if they're going to relate to the content, they need to have a way to see themselves in the content. And years ago, back when I first started with Jan and we were doing a, a program, public history with the American History Museum, a curator said during this this conference or this symposium that there is no point, there's no subject in history where there isn't a story about people with disabilities. So he was a transportation curator, but that was such a flashpoint for me. It was, yes, this is absolutely true. You know, we have 157 million objects at the Smithsonian and like we were saying in our pre-meeting, you know, this is extraordinary number of objects, but there is no doubt that there are disability stories connected to quite a few of those objects in the Smithsonian collections. And so what our what is necessary for us to do in terms of DEAI work is to make sure that the diversity of voices is being shared with our audiences and that we tell the stories about people with disabilities or people who are LGBTQ+, other marginalized groups through our exhibition of different objects. So it could be on the surface, something as simple as, you know, a, a vehicle or something else, but there is the potential for there to be a richer story about that object when you talk about who used this or how did it impact different groups. And that's a really essential part to museum work now. I want to underline something you just said that I think might go unsaid otherwise. We started out our show by talking about DEI is about people, 
but accessibility is about the environment. We also talked about intersectionality, a point you just brought up seems to bring those two things together. People with disabilities are people who need the environment to be changed or designed differently so that they can access it. But also, any group of people with disabilities are not only that group where changing or modifying the environment is required. They are also a marginalized group, <laughs> right? That we're, that's another kind of a, a, a intersectionality. And I guess that goes to why it is, Beth, that you are the head of DEAI. A goes into DEI because it's not just about the environment, it's also about that being marginalized. Do I, did I, did, is that right? Did I miss the entire point of the first half of our conversation or did that, is that a useful light bulb or where yes. am I, okay, am I all right here? Yes, you're all right. You, it's a great way to connect a number of the points that we've been making. And I think that's essential to, to understanding this. Yeah. That's okay. Good. Wait a minute. I think I have like, you know, misunderstood the title of my own show, but I'm happy that it's just, I am paralleling the learning experience of our visitors, which is great. Number eight. So we've gotten to our last point. I'm not quite sure how we did that, but we've gotten to our last point. Number eight. And this is another one of those sort of black belt points. And it relates to the project that you did that I think is still at the National Museum of American History. It is a project of the Latino Center. I don't know how much about that project you want to share, but that's a project where you and a whole team of people did some really out of the ordinary sort of envelope pushing, frontier establishing work about making it accessible in all the ways that you've described, and also DEAI. And one of the points there was number eight, exhibition teams can tap individuals with disabilities as user experts. What is a user expert in this sense and how can exhibition teams tap them? User expert is a term that was actually coined by the founder of what is now IHCD. It was Elaine Ostroff who started the organization called Adaptive Environments that later became IHCD. And Elaine said that user experts are people who have life experiences with disabilities. If you are a primary user expert, you are someone who has a disability and you are expert in your own experiences. It doesn't mean that you are an expert on the ADA or how accessibility functions in museums, but you know how you function in a museum or any other environment. There are also secondary user experts, and those are people who have lived experience with people with disabilities as either family or friends or professionals, so that day-to-day experience alongside people with disabilities, now called allies as opposed to advocates. And IHCD and now the Smithsonian, and we have informally used user experts all along the way at the Smithsonian from way back in my time. We just didn't call them that. But the essential point is to bring in people who are you're trying to reach and get their take observe what they're doing see how they're functioning in whatever environment they're in 
what works and what doesn't, how th- how people create workarounds, how they innovate to make something work for them that doesn't originally work for them, how something works perfectly for them. And so user experts are a key part of whatever what ICD does and what the Smithsonian does with exhibitions, with programs, with physical spaces, with general visitor experiences. And then it becomes a piece not only in how to improve the quality of what we offer, but it also then incorporates people, gets make sure that we have perspectives included, and then broadens us to look at hiring staff with disabilities, recruiting volunteers with disabilities, getting board members with disabilities, having directors with disabilities, that we make sure that that perspective just absolutely infiltrates everything that we do. So in that sense of user expert, user means a user of the environment. Exactly. A user of the the thing you're making. Right. And then expert is on their personal expertise. And we make sure that someone said to me the other day, how do you end up without 15 bespoke solutions? But it's all based in the ADA standards, the Smithsonian guidelines for accessible exhibition design, whatever, all of our past experience, and it just enriches it and makes it more immediately important. So I think you brought up user experts and how we use them for the National Museum of the American Latinos inaugural exhibition presente. What was really amazing about that particular project was it's one of the few where we're able to embed inclusive design from the very beginning, from concept stage through construction on into the maintenance phase, where we were able to bring in user experts throughout the design period and to try out things and see what was going to work in terms of, you know, things like how we were going to access audio description in the exhibition or tactile elements or the color contrast, et cetera. You know, all of those things that go into an exhibition and tested them out with people with disabilities and adjusted. And it was everybody's responsibility. It wasn't just the accessibility people brought in, like Jan and myself. Ooh. It was the exhibition designer. It was the project manager. It was the curators, the digital team that wrote a lot yeah. of the audio description after some training. You know, it was just an amazing work all together with this group to come up with an inclusively designed space. It's not perfect, mm-hmm. but it is a really good example of trying to make sure that we were addressing the needs of a wide range of visitors. I have to I have to ask you, this is our last point, so I have to say, you, you mentioned that it, it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. Will it ever be perfect? No, we will never get to perfect, and that's okay. I think that that's why we are really focused on the idea of providing lots of different options for people, a lot of different tools, because we are not going to meet everybody's needs with one design. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's a, another, you know, the fact that we won't reach perfection is no excuse not to start the journey. Right. Or as some people say, the perfect is the enemy of the very good. Exactly. Jen, you said something that earlier that I think is a great point to maybe end on, which is that a user expert is not necessarily an expert in a subject matter. Like the user expert is not you. Beth, you just described yourself, you and Jen, as the accessibility people. Yeah. You know, print. Let's print the tote bag. But the idea we that the them. user, <laughs> you have some. Okay, great. <laughs> that the user experts are experts in themselves. Yeah. In the subject of themselves, in the subject of their own lived experience, which makes me feel like everyone is an expert in something, yeah. which you know kind of leads us back to some of our first points about humanity, which is, I don't know, terrific. I, I thought that this conversation was going to be very powerful, extremely useful, timely, and very necessary, but I underestimated. <laughs> this has been a terrific conversation. I'm going to do a quick recap for our listeners of what we've discussed today, because the list itself, as we often have on this show, is worth just writing down. So our topic for today was DEAI, meeting ADA isn't enough with Beth Zebarth and Jan Majewski. Number one, individuals with disabilities are 26% at least of the population. Two, to be essential to all, museums and exhibitions must be accessible to all. Three, DEI plus accessibility equals DEAI. Four, DEI is about people. Accessibility is about their environment. Five, intersectionality. We learned about that. Everyone has multiple identities. Number six, meeting the ADA standards is not enough for today with DEAI. Some new standards are always being created and some might be on the way. Number seven, visitors with disabilities want to see themselves reflected in the exhibitions, meaning the content of the exhibitions. And number eight, exhibition teams can tap individuals with disabilities to be this beautiful thing called user experts. How did I do? Did I? Great job. All right. <laughs> you okay. said it all. Beth and Jan, it has been great to have you on the show. If listeners would like to get in touch with each of you, what is the best way for them to do that? We can put some contact info and other news that our listeners can use in the show notes. But for those people who are jogging or doing the dishes, where can they find you, Beth? And where can they find you, Jan? Yeah. They can find me on the Smithsonian website. My email address is my last name, Zebarth, Z-I-E-B as in boy, A-R-T-H, at S-I dot E-D-U. So feel free to email me. But you can also find me through the Smithsonian website. Got it. And uh, Jan, how about you? Same thing, the Institute for Human-Centered Designs website. And my email address is jmajewski.com. J-M-A-J-E-W-S-K-I at IHCdesign.org. Got it. Great. It's been great to have you both on the show. If the listeners got half of what I got out of it, they got an enormous amount out of it. But I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you would like to get in touch with me or you have an idea for, your, for a, a future show, Go to makingthemuseum.com, hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. By the way, this podcast has an older sister, a one-minute newsletter under the same name, one quick insight each time 
For museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros, subscribe at makingthemuseum.com. Big button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.